Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we're back again, and this week we are talking about your firm's secret sauce. That's actually what you wanted to talk about, so I'm excited to hear about it from you on this podcast episode. Yeah, I, you know, this is something that I'm really, I, I'm really excited about, and I like, you know, I, part of my job at Woodard is as is a practice coach. And so we dig into this a lot in our coaching sessions on what is it that sets you apart from your competitors? And what is it about you, your firm, your team, your skills that becomes the secret sauce of what you're bringing to to the world? So you're connecting secret sauce here specifically to practice distinction. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, go. I'm excited to hear all about it. Definitely. And I want to dig into lots of different areas because there's lots of different ways that you can differentiate your practice in the industry and you know, really create that secret sauce and 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 use it to make sure that people understand what it is that sets your firm apart from the rest of the firms and your competition out there. Um, so how are you going to stand out? That's the thing that I challenge everybody listening to this podcast to ask themselves is how do you stand out? Or if you don't feel like you stand out, how should you stand out? What is that vision, mission, purpose uh, that you have set for your firm? And how are you going to set yourself apart in the industry so that you feel like you're delivering excellence, that you're living your purpose, and that you have the practice that you really want? So the first topic that everybody kind of goes to in practice direct differentiation is price leadership. Joe. <laughs> it's true. It is true. You go, okay, well, I could be the cheapest in town. I could be the cheapest in town and that could differentiate me from my competitors and probably not going to lead to a whole lot of personal or professional satisfaction. So, and I don't you know, know that it's the distinction you want. Exactly. You know, exactly. Right. Not, not the distinction you want. Um, I don't think that anybody really goes after intentionally anyway um, to be, I am the cheapest game in town. Just not, not, not a great differentiator. So that being said, you could, your practice distinction could be that you're the most profitable firm in town. And the way you can do that is by pricing strategy, uh, super streamlining your processes so that you're very automated and very efficient and very effective as a firm. Uh, You could implement outsourcing. I know lots of firms that have really differentiated in that area because they have really figured out how to outsource with excellence. And I do think that's a thing, Joe. Outsourcing with excellence is what we need to be thinking about. When we find an outsourcing partner, they need to align with the culture and and the excellence that we're doing within our own firm. And it is possible. I've seen it. It is in existence. It's amazing. There's great firms out there um, like FinSmart and SKS that are doing some really great things for the industry. So the other thing that I would say about price differentiation is it just got even harder to be the cheapest game in town because there's technology companies out there that have AI, 
they have automated this stuff and they have very low margins and they're okay with that. <laughs> so if that is where your differentiation is, um, I beg you to reconsider. And I'm going to talk about all the other different ways that you can differentiate uh, in your practice. So the, the next one I want to talk about, and I'm going to say the first one I want to talk about, because I think we just completely <laughs> kind of pulled the rug out from the price one, um, yeah. is niche expertise. So niching expertise, and there's a couple of places that you can niche. So we hear niche, niche. Um, you know, when we think about that, a lot of times we're thinking about just industry. That's the one that pops into our mind. We're going to niche in a particular industry. I'm going to be the expert at medical or dental. Um, I'm going to learn everything I can about legal, um, you know, servicing lawyers and, and legal firms. Maybe you're really passionate about inventory and you know a lot about manufacturing, um, services, retail, you name it. You can niche by industry. And that is certainly something that a lot of firms are doing. Um, some niches that I don't think get talked about as much as they should because of the incredible opportunities um, that you may want to consider are cannabis. So cannabis, you know, is I, I don't have this the the facts, maybe you do, Joe, on how many states have now legalized cannabis. Um, but there's I don't quite know the a, actual you know, number of states, but it's it, they're just coming in, they're folding in um, state by state. So the market's constantly expanding. Yes. It's constantly expanding. And it's heavily and so regulated. I'm sure you're going to go there too. So there's a lot of compliance requirement expertise involved. There is, but the, you know, the entrepreneurs that are stepping into cannabis, they are willing to learn with you because they understand that. So it's an emerging it's an emerging industry, so there's tons of opportunity there. And um, we're actually, for the first time uh, at Scanley New Heights, we actually have a track. Uh, we, we actually have a session where we're going to have a panel of mm -hmm. um, industry experts that are going to be talking about the cannabis industry, what that opportunity looks like, and how you can get started um, you know, servicing that industry. You so that's going to be that a really ramp up with a brand new industry. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's one that I think people should be paying attention to. Um, and there's so many ways that you can go down. I mean, from the, the cast of, of the cast supporting people and cast as far as cannabis, um, audit, there's so many ways, tax, um, and it's and, just you know, going to cryptocurrency is another interesting one, um, yeah. because it's, it's increasingly regulated. Uh, the regulations are changing because they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And, um, and more and more people are creating material investments. And of course it's a scheduled D activity, but not a lot of people understand it. Um, and if you do understand it, it's constantly moving target. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's another great way to, to differentiate as you were kind of getting into the compliance side of it. Um, right. I want to throw that in. So you're talking industry and then maybe some specialized compliance where cannabis overlap. Uh, yep. Yeah. They definitely, and, and yeah, they definitely, they definitely overlap. The other one, Joe, that I've seen firms do really, really well at, and more people are dipping their toe into this, is family business. Mm, so okay. working with those family partnerships, those family business, actually handing, handling high wealth families um, and doing advisory. Uh, the ca there's cast work related to that, you know. Yeah, they're basically businesses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, concierge. So, yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So there's finding a niche within an industry is, is compelling because 
<clears throat> you can learn everything there possibly is to learn about that industry and that sets you apart, right? So there's practices out there that all they do are dental practices. And so if I'm a dentist and I'm looking to acquire a, a dental practice, you bet that I'm going to be looking for uh, an accounting services team that knows everything they possibly can about my industry because that's going to set me off, you know, on the right track. So definitely be thinking about that <clears throat> to differentiate your 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 practice. The second one within niche that I wanted to talk about is company size. So I see firms that are specializing in the either the stage right of the company, so startups, right. Um, startup companies, um, small business SMBs, um, up to a certain level of revenue. Um, once you go into private equity and venture capitalist um, backed companies, um, there's people that start with they're just getting started with the startups, or they're looking for that series, you know, um, B or C funding. And there's firms that are really focusing in on helping with that, and that is a niche. Um, Enterprise firms. So we've seen, you know, we keep hearing in the buzz, you know, go after mid-market. So that is a niche now where people are stepping out of serving the small, you know, mom and pop stores and small micro businesses. Um, and micro businesses are another niche, right? I also know practitioners that have done really, really well serving those micro businesses. So Heather, so, how have how have they solved for for the pricing problem and the account management load problem? Because it takes a lot. We have a saying down here in the South, it takes a it takes a mess of squirrel to make a dinner, right? So uh, and that's what you actually call when you cook up squirrel. It's a mess like uh like fish. So it takes a mess of squirrel to not that I eat squirrel, but mess of squirrel to take a dinner. So it takes a lot of those accounts to to build a, a portfolio for a firm. How are they dealing with with that? Um. Yeah, no, that's a great question. That's a great question. So there's a couple of strategies that I've heard, and we're actually having a session on- I don't mean to get us off topic. I don't mean to get off topic. It it's is, just no, mentioned. no, no. It's a great yeah. conversation. I think that we, it should definitely be addressed because people are probably asking the exact same thing, Joe. Right. Yeah. Um, and we have a session at Scaling New Heights in okay. June this year Appropriate. Being, yes. uh, being taught by uh, Astrid Galvitz, and she's going to be digging into this because that's what her focus is. So a couple of strategies that that I've, I've heard and seen talking to other practitioners are um, uh, process is huge. So process is huge. If you know what a business needs to do and you can execute on that very efficient, efficiently through your team, then that Obviously, so you kind of consult the with them down. on how to build out their back office, and okay, yeah, exactly. that could be very lucrative. It can be very lucrative. Um, partnering with uh, with service uh, tech enabled services, right? So partnering with payroll companies and making residuals on that. Yeah, right? all right. So now you're you're complementing so that the passive income helps offset. Yeah, okay, exactly. Um, so you could do that with a payroll company. You could do that with a sales tax company. And There's lots big on of that too. Yeah. What's that, Jeff? Merch, merch, I don't mean to interrupt you, but merchant oh. might be big on that too. Yeah. Because they might be at 100,000 now, but you get to ride the residuals up to when they grow to 3 million. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, so they're doing it that way. Um, and then, you know, businesses grow. So one of the things, my mom was a CPA, you know that, Joe, and mm -hmm. I remember her, when I first started working with her, I used to ask her why she worked with these small companies um, that had the small fees. And she said, because they grow. 
She goes, I find the clients that I know are going to be successful that are my ideal client. And I'm there through the long haul. And by the time they reach million dollars, $2 million, $10 million, I'm still working with them. So there's lots of uh, strategies. But if you want to hear more about it, go to Stanley. <laughs> yeah, well, Astrid, you know, well one, one more thing over the wall. And I don't know if it's yep. something that she's covering in her breakout or not. But if not, maybe you could advise her to fold it in is I've seen some success with taking sort of a group coaching or a group advisory mm -hmm. perspective, kind of like what we do with accounting firms. We have a lot of micro firms. Yeah, that's the market we service. And we choose to do it through a community approach where people pay less, but they're in there with their peers. I, it's like the if you can't afford an aerobics instructor, then you go to the group aerobics class. Um, and if you can't even afford that, then you buy the aerobics video or you stream the aerobics video. Right. So they could push out resources, um, you know, through pre-recorded on-demand sessions, group training sessions, and let everybody kind of share the economic load. That could definitely be no. And you know, the other the other one that I've I've heard um, is grants. Oh, so yes. partnering with the SBDC, partnering with state organizations that offer grants to new startups, that gets your bill paid. Right. Yep. So if you have a relationship and you know how to execute on that, you can provide the service. You're still getting paid good money for the service you're providing. It's just that the startup's not paying that money. They're getting those grants. So, so far we talked about pricing to make you elite, not cheap. So I'm going to put right. that one back on the table, but differentiator on okay. price to make you elite, not cheap. Okay. Love that. Yep. Talked about industry niche. So my next one is specialized regulatory. And now yes. business size. All right, you got a lot on the table so far. What's next? I do. So the next one is technical expertise. And that kind of falls into what you mentioned with the tax, you know, specialized tax training, things like that. So you could have tax advisory and strategy. We have firms like Randy Crabtree's firm. Um, he, he specializes in tax credits. So um, you could learn everything you possibly learn about tax credits. You could go into tax representation. Um, you could go into, I, I had a, there's a firm here locally that worked on um, uh, historical credits for businesses in Rhode Island that are very lucrative. And so these companies would come in and they would rehab historical property and they would get these big tax credits that paid off for, for years to come. Um, service lines, R&D, right? Research and development, um, other credits, audit, specialized audit. So uh, one is HUD audits. I know there's a firm, there's a couple local firms in Rhode Island. They specialize in HUD audits, mm. right? Which is a low income housing. It's a very specialized, they're killing it out there, right? So there's lots of different ways to niche on service lines. And then finally, the one that I did where I niched in my practice was technology. So niching in, you know, a particular general, uh, general ledger program like QuickBooks, Sage, or Xero. Um, I was QuickBooks expert. So were you, Joe. We went in, we knew everything about QuickBooks and people hired us and paid us good money on the knowledge, based on the knowledge that we have that we could deliver to them to help them implement, clean up, use software. Um, databases like QuickBase. Can I make a comment uh, on that though? Oh, of I course. believe the, that while what you're saying is true, the earth is scorched on GL. I think to at this point to say, hey, I'm going to differentiate because I'm a QuickBooks expert or Zero expert. I mean, that ship sailed, right? I mean, we did it back in the day when it was yeah. a differentiator. Um, now, everybody, is, it's not just everybody purports to be a QBO or Zero expert. There are tens of thousands that truly are. 
So uh, at varying degrees of greatness. But your point, and I, and I think this was the point, the large point you were making, is the software, you were just using yourself as an example. So exactly. I, I, would, I mean, it, yeah. it would be more what integrates with, right? Right. What at this point, you're people. right, because the, the pro-advisor landscape is saturated. It is. They're a dime a dozen. It is no longer is the differentiator that it was. But you're right. It's the add-on applications. Um, other ways that you could go are, you know, databases like QuickBase. We've got Vark Solutions that's the QuickBase expert in the yes, industry. You, as There's soon as you say QuickBase, well. you think them, right? Exactly. Not that they're the only um, ones out there, but they've done a good job differentiating their brand around it. And that's the key takeaway is expertise without telling the story doesn't get right. to the market. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, Laura Redman with Method, right? Yes. So she she is a method expert. Um, no code platform. So Zapier, I was the Zapier queen. And um, so I was able to differentiate my brand by my deep understanding and expertise in Zapier and no code applications. Um, Zoho is a great one. Zoho, um, who's been at our show for, gosh, I don't know, a Joe forever. Um, yeah. They're a no code platform that has so many functions and and features mm -hmm. that you can dig into. You know, it has GL, it has a CRM, it has a no-code platform, it has there's so many modules that you could piece together. That's a place where you if you learned Zoho um, and the modules, you could consult, you know, holistically on a business and that would be a great way to differentiate yourself. And by the um, way, can I mention on that one? They sure. are in their US journey where Intuit was with the GL about 20 years ago. Now Globally, yeah. globally, they own the India market um, and they they are the heir apparent for the Middle East. But here in the U.S., they're at, at more of an entry point. And that would be a great example of going back 20 years and saying, I'm the Zoho expert riding the GL wave for a minute. Right. All right. Go ahead. Definitely. And there's a huge opportunity there because small businesses and even larger businesses are implementing Zoho and there's not a lot of people out there supporting it. So that mm -hmm. that is a great one. Um, the next one I was going to talk about was e-commerce. Right. So e-commerce. So <clears throat> we have firms out there that have really differentiated themselves around the e-commerce space and become experts in that um, ERP solutions. And of course, now we see people really digging into AI. So they're differentiating themselves by doing experimentation with generative AI. They're starting to implement that into their firms. And honestly, the firms that get that right have a huge, huge, um, you know. Uh, advantage, yes. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> you found the words for me, Joe. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that brand distinction of saying, hey, I'm an AI-driven firm, right? Um, Absolutely. So, yep. Yeah. Now, the nice thing about that too, if that sounds daunting to you all, is by adopting the right pieces of software, you can be an AI-driven firm without having to do the actual AI coding. Um, and you know, Botkeeper has now gone to market with a with a technology-only offering. It's brand new. I haven't actually even put eyes on it. So, but I'm just making saying that's an example. And I think you're going to see more and more of those um, where you can subscribe your way into that brand distinction. Yeah, there's. Uh there's a CPA, I think it's called CPA Chat that was just released. Um, I keep seeing it on Facebook. I haven't had a chance to demo it yet, but it is generative AI with supposedly a CPA brain. It's meant mm -hmm. for CPAs to ask questions. I think we're going to see a lot more applications come on the market like that. Um, in addition to, we now have applications out there that allow you to build your own. So yes. you can actually take and export 
you know, your own IP, dump it into these engines and start to build your own chatbot. And I think Hector Garcia has kind of dabbled in that a bit as well. Um, well, and that's a little bit of what Digits is doing too. And then just right. the, the caution I like to always give is understand that these are open platforms, most of them. And unless they have a tokenized or encrypted layer like Digits has been offering, uh, be careful, you know, uh, putting your information out there in it. But with all that being said, when you do it right, yes, you can leverage um, other people's AI algorithms. You can subscribe to people who have whole platforms. You do not have to become an AI programmer in order to participate and play in the party. Yeah. All right. Any others? Yeah. Uh, the other one is, that, well, the last one that I was going to talk about uh, was process optimization and optimized team and process. So are your are your processes within your, your firm properly documented and democratized across your entire firm? Do you have excellence in training and staffing up and actually creating a career path for your team? Because that is a way that you can really have the cutting edge within the industry, because that's where a lot of firms, I would say most firms really struggle is yep. the ability to find talent, train them quickly, get them, you know, get them where them. they need to be, offer a career path and, 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 you know, and retain your, uh, you know, your team. So what I, what I like uh, Heather about what you've done here is you've taken a couple of these and you made them peer to peer distinctions and, and maybe softer branding and optics distinctions, you know, almost like on the PR side, Hey, we're a great firm to work for. Um, and then you've had some that are market facing. And, and yes. I think that's the big mistake a lot of people make is they'll either tip the scales too much toward peer to peer brand or too much toward market facing brand and not realize this is something you've got to harmonize and it, it, you've got to make it holistic. I love that. I love that. You, you said that so eloquently. Well, you uh, were the one that did it. All I did was just summarize. So. <laughs> <laughs> you put it together. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to move on from this since that was a conversation. I've kind of already given my thoughts, but um, I've got this uh, segment that because I'm the I'm a big, big movie TV buff. So I've got this segment sort of Joe's TV movie quote of the, of the week. And uh, this time it was the Oppenheimer movie. Uh, fascinating movie, by the way. It mm -hmm. deserves every accolade it's ever, uh, it ever received. So well written, so well produced. It was a joy to watch. And I had meant to catch it at the theater because I was afraid I would get distracted. So instead, I waited till my my family was out of town and even the dog had gone with them uh, because I knew once I started this thing, I wanted to I wanted to get completely lost in it. And that's the way I would recommend watching it. Um, but in the movie, uh, the there's a government official named Louis Strauss and and he has this line about Oppenheimer. Um Genius is no guarantee of wisdom. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. he's become death, the destroyer of worlds, right? So this is the softer version of the quote that he gave about himself uh, from uh, inventing the atomic bomb. But um, but my my takeaway, my it, my little add on notes to this is it does take the proverbial village um, to do the right thing. Um, it, it, in other words, knowledge is not the it not only not the equivalent of wisdom, it's not only wisdom's in equivalent. Knowledge is often its polar opposite, right? Um, it takes voices of ethics, 
voices of social responsibility, voices of environmental impacts, you know, and economic impacts to take the, the, this sort of double-edged sword of, of human genius and make sure it's directed into the correct place. Now it would be a fun debate that has nothing to do with the scope and nature of this podcast, uh, Heather, to talk about, you know, the actual atomic bomb and sort of this nuclear balance we've created of preventing war through mutual destruction. That's a conversation that's outside the scope of this, uh, this, this conversation, but just in general, using Oppenheimer as the launching pad, right? Um, Genius must be directed. It does. And, you know, interesting. I loved Oppenheimer, too. It was an amazing movie. Um, one of the things that came out of me watching that movie and it was an awareness that, you know, our my, my grandfather was actually an Air Force uh, engineer and he worked on some of this stuff in New Mexico. And um, one of the things that came out of this is I actually connected with another person my age who's grandparent also was involved in this is that this was a real, you know, a really, and again, you said, this could be another podcast and another, you know, conversation, but I think that there's a huge learning here and it's, it's, you know, it's definitely a great time for this movie to come out because we're seeing this again with AI, right? We're seeing this with the, with this AI and the ethical complexity of just because we can doesn't mean we should. Just because we can do a thing doesn't mean we must do that thing. And I, it escapes me who said it, but it's a famous quote, right? Right. And you know, what's interesting is we're going to have our own version of genius at Scaling Heights, as you know, Michio Kaiku, who's going to yes. be on this podcast very soon here. And we're going to be talking about that very thing. He addresses mm-hmm. it in his book, Quantum Supremacy, you know, uh, and Elon Musk, who I'm going to be talking about here in a minute for my book segment. Uh, he, of course, has been addressing it well, only a little hypocritically, in my opinion, uh, but he's been addressing it as well. So um, right. it it's an important and ongoing conversation that it is. W- will never end as long as human genius and innovation endure. And it will it will endure. So I, I know I'm kind of going back to back here, but you you had the topic and I had my movie segment, but I also had the book. So I'm going to. You did? And the, yes. The, the book and the quote go together. Uh, I paired them like a, like a wine and a steak this time around. And the steak here, to go with that little sip of wine that we just had, was the book that I read, a biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. It's a big, big book. So I consume most of the books that I read using my air quotes here through Audible. This one, uh, even on 1.2 speed, some books I can go 1.5. This one I did 1.2. It took 20 hours of listening time. Wow. Um, but I did that in cars and planes and, you know, other places. Um, but uh, but it was, I could not stop listening. I kept thinking to myself, do I just want to go ahead and cut it at this point, go to something else? Because it's such an investment of my audible uh, capacity. But it was intriguing to me. Now, my major takeaways, uh, first, the overall impression of the person, which you have before and after you read the book at different levels of informed opinion. What is known about him is that he's erratic, he's punchy, vindictive, hyper-competitive, he's got obsessive behaviors, he's got odd family practices, maybe even he could be argued a little conspiratorial um, in his thinking. Um, 
what what I didn't know until I read the book, though, is is he believes the earth is underpopulated. He thinks we need more uh, genius DNA. So he has taken it on himself to to perpetuate his DNA into the species. So I, I lost count on the kids. Uh, it's got to be over 10. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of kids. And, and a lot of them, uh, most of them even, were, were birthed through unconventional means, surrogate, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, behavior, sur- sur- surrogate practices. Um, uh, and a lot, but the point is, uh, he's got a lot of kids, disproportionately to how many wives. Um, but what is lesser known about Elon Musk is that he's intensely practical with operational administrative financial matters, um, where he's you know, the richest person in the world any given day. There was, I missed the article yesterday on how the jury ruled on one of his payouts. So he may not be the richest person as of yesterday, but he is, you know, extremely wealthy. Um, despite that, he will walk around a Tesla plant or a SpaceX plant and question every expenditure down to the penny. Um, so what, I, what I've learned from his behaviors there is you never out wealth your way out of that problem. You should never. It's bad stewardship of a company to say, because I can afford a thing, I'm not going to worry about cost overruns or expense overruns. A company needs to be stewarded. Um, the, the, the second is that he's that way in his personal life. He own, he does not own a home as of the end of the book. Now, unless he's bought one in the last six months, He's the richest person in the world any given day, and he does not own a home. He rents his home from, uh, I believe it's the Tesla Corporation or the SpaceX Corporation. He lives pretty much on campus to get work done. And it's like a like a two-bedroom apartment. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he also has never been to space because wow. he says, there is no value in me going to space. It would just be an exercise in narcissism, which was also an attack on Bezos. Um, but, but yeah, a lot of du- dual yeah. edged swords in all of his tweets, but he's never been to space. He doesn't own a home. Interesting. Yeah. And, and my favorite example, uh, and this is a, this is an encouragement because we love to talk about spin management here. We have an entire curriculum on spin management and our coaching courses, and we're, we're addressing it at scaling new heights. As you know, Heather, spin management is not just good company stewardship. It's a way to just dis- dis- differentiate your practice, add value and get your prices up. So, you know, if it, to get in a spin management frame of mind, question everything, just like Elon Musk does, question everything. So when he was building one of his many models of rockets, um, you know, it was one of the very early ones. Um, he was quoted at $3 million for a coolant system that is what Boeing uses. And um, he, he was actually offended by that. Right. Well, what he learned later is that through government cost plus contracts, that had that price had been grossly inflated, almost fraudulently. I'm, I don't want to accuse a company of fraud here. So I'm going to say in Joe's opinion, borderline, mm-hmm. it could be considered fraud by some people uh, because of the fact that it was three million dollars for a coolant system and a cost plus tax funded kind of contract. So he asked how you know, what is a commercially available HVAC unit cost for a house? $3,000 ordered one and he repurposed it to work on his SpaceX rocket for $3,000. Uh, excuse me, $6,000. I want to get the numbers right. So $3 million became $6,000. Wow. Um, wow. 
it if he can do that at SpaceX when he doesn't need to, because he had government contracts too, when he can do that at SpaceX when he doesn't need to, what could we do for our clients if we question everything? Now, a couple of other major takeaways and some quotable quotes. Um, personal brand is powerful. Um, and you're going to think I'm going to go one direction here, but I'm actually going to go double-edged sword on it. Elon Musk's personal brand gets in the way, in my opinion, of his CE role roles and founder roles at various publicly traded companies, right? He's, he's, it's known that he, that some of his tweets have affected share price in negative ways and things like that. So, um, personal brand is powerful in that it can, it can hurt you if you don't, if you exercise it in incorrect ways. Um, if you get off the, the nature like we didn't talk about the ethics of the atomic bomb here. We just mentioned that we don't talk about that on our podcast. And we don't, we don't talk about politics here. We just mentioned that we don't talk about politics here. So stay in your lane, stay true to the nature of what you're trying to accomplish with the company that you're representing. Then you can do whatever you want to in your personal life, but even understand that that impacts your company. You can't separate the two, but I want to put it into the positive. When you have a very strong personal brand, and I would say with Elon Musk, even a sense of sort of like global awe, the Michael Jordan, Elon Musk, right? There are certain people that that everybody on the planet just knows their name and they're in awe of certain things about them, even if they don't like them personally. Then you have a, a certain amount of immunity because he's one of the few people I know that can attack a sitting president or attack the second or third most richest person in the world, or even attack his own investors or whatever you, I mean, and attack is Joe's opinion of what these tweets are and still thrive. So at some point, not that any of us are at there at that point, <laughs> but it's at some point brand becomes immune, uh, an immunity. Uh, like corporately I, yeah. and, and individually, but the takeaway, I, the cautionary takeaway does apply to all of us. Don't burn your personal brand fighting the wrong right. fight. Don't hurt your company just to make a point. Or do you have something to say? Do you have a point I to make? I was just going to bring up that, you know, what's going on right now and this conversation is happening out on social media and in the news and everything is Taylor Swift with the Super Bowl, right? That's true. So, yes. Right. So uh, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, you know, there was, everybody was talking about her personal brand and, and how does that now is kind of intertwined with, you know, Travis Kelsey and the, and the, yeah. Anyway, yep. that's what no, I thought. You're of, right. But. And you can burn, you could, you could burn a lot of goodwill and a lot of lifetime energy fighting something that nobody will even remember later, but the damage right. is done. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, the small innovations matter. You know, we're back to kind of that air conditioning unit um, and the small cost cuts matter. Um, Over-innovation is a death blow. Uh, I I think you know, I'm a Tesla owner. And when I bought the Tesla, it, it had to go back about four times to fix various little hardware problems. They have an assembly line problem. Um, and if Elon Musk maybe was focused more on quality control and less on his next big thing, which is colonizing Mars... Um, so either either step down as CEO and let somebody else run it with their full attention or get the small thing. You don't over innovate to the point where you have quality control problems, production problems and, you know, things like that. So 
Um, there is a power in broke, which kind of gets me back to the HBC and watch every spin control. I'm using Damon John's titular kind of uh, book title uh, there, The Power Broke. It's another great book I would encourage anybody to read. But Elon Musk never gets so rich that he thinks that he shouldn't save every penny he can. Um, if conventional thinking makes your task impossible, this is an actual quote from Elon Musk. If conventional thinking makes your task impossible, unconventional thinking is necessary. <laughs> so it, don't just go, it can't be done. You right. know, change, change right. the thinking. And coming from Elon Musk, that carries a little bit of weight. Um, because whatever you love or hate about him, you cannot deny that the guy is a brilliant innovator and has done things that everybody else said were impossible, right? Yeah, you know, that's and the you know, collective energy. And it goes back to if you watch Oppenheimer, which I think everybody go watch it because it's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But it comes back to the fact that none of that would have happened if if people stayed in their lane and they 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 only thought conventionally. Correct. So I I a hundred percent agree with that that once you open your mind to things that you don't think are possible, that's where the magic happens. And yes, that can happen even in accounting, right? That can happen even in accounting and in technology and how we deliver services. So. Absolutely. I've got one mm -hmm. final takeaway and then I'm, I'm excited to hear what your tweet of the week is, but um, our social post of the week is, but the last one um, is he is a bit of an adrenaline junkie and he goes from crisis to crisis. And when he doesn't have one, he kind of manufactures one. He had to learn that about himself. Um, so, uh, it, it says in the book, it was Walter Isaacson's comment, not Elon Musk's, that you can't be in a constant state of survival and without it taking sure. a toll. Um, but he said, Elon Musk struggles on the other side, though he's realized that he says in the absence of a constant state of survival, uh, or constant state of emergency, he finds it difficult to be motivated. And what I would, my unsolicited, unprofessional lay advice to Elon Musk that he'll never hear, um, but I'm going to give him, would be if you go, if you stop going back and forth between adrenaline and and depressive states, adrenaline depressive states, and get off that swing for a minute, you'll normalize. Mm -hmm. And. And that is from Joe Woodard's School of Hard Knocks, because maybe I haven't, I'm not nearly the entrepreneur he is in results. I am nonetheless identifying with some of his entrepreneurial traits in practice. And I used to do the same thing, go back and forth between the adrenaline overdoses and the withdrawals, the adrenal overdoses and the withdrawals. And I had to learn how to normalize that roller coaster a bit. Well, I'm going to throw out a Heatherism before we jump into our tweet, because my thought always goes to if you're in control, great businessman, you know, is able to become profitable, has become the wealthiest person in the world. Um, what do you do with that? And I think that that's something that's really important. If you're generating that much wealth, I think that there is an ethical responsibility. And again, this is the opinion of Heather Satterley. There's an ethical responsibility on to really think about how should that wealth be used? Correct. Just throwing Well, in his case, it's colonizing Mars, solving the planet's population problem, um, their food problem, uh, you know, the environmental impacts of fossil fuels, which he's trying to now create batteries that, that aren't right. as impactful on the environment. So you would say, okay, he's leveraging and he sold all of his personal wealth in order to put it all back into these causes. Um, 
uh, space research, and now he's doing the neuro links in order to create uh, so that people who are captive inside their own body, like Stephen Hawking, can actually have functional and can even control robots around them and liberate themselves from their bodies. And he thinks maybe even one day he can solve the problem of moving that consciousness into that robot to further liberate the handicapped so, or the disabled. So it's arguable he's checking some boxes on the on that card, but it's also arguable that he's doing a lot of things that don't. But the point is taken, right? Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And and yep. you know, Michio Kaku, he's gonna be talking about that because that's what quantum supremacy was about. Yes. Right. Was with this technology, with these resources that we have, are we putting it in the right place? And where, I mean, we could spend, Joe, you and I could spend an ethical conversation. We, we have. Yeah. <laughs> we have well, absolutely. It's the Gene yeah. Roddenberry effect, right? That's yes, what I call totally. the Gene Roddenberry effect because his vision of the Star Trek future was technology is going to solve all those economic inequities right. and all of those barriers and constraints and allow humans to be their their best human selves. Now, it's very idealistic, but I happen to share it. No, All right. absolutely. And, and then there's and... the Borg, right, Joe? I just yeah, got to say, there's the Borg. there was the Borg. That's so. the warning and cautionary side. Thank you for bringing that up. And you're if right. you don't know what that is, you're going to have to go to Wikipedia and, and, and Google uh, <laughs> Borg because we won't unpack that. But thank you because that's the inverse warning is we can't 100%. become the Borg while we also have to become, you know, empowered by this technology. I love that. So what was your favorite social post out there this week? Okay. My social post was by Mark Manson on, on X. Uh, and it was being unhealthy is painful. Being mm. healthy is painful. Oh, interesting. Having no relationships is painful. Having relationships is painful. <laughs> being lazy is painful. Working really hard is painful. It's this. just different flavors of pain. So you might as well pick the flavors of pain that are going to help you and give you a better set of life. I and I don't that. even know what I could possibly add to that because to me, he basically summed up, we have will, right? We get to choose. Nothing is easy. So we, we have to decide. Well, right? it's a mindset thing. Totally it's, it's the lens through which you interpret what's going on exactly. in your world, which fits, by the way, we did not orchestrate this perfectly with my favorite social post uh, from Yaikel Steinberg, uh, CPA out of New Jersey or New York, one or the other. Um, but he said, uh, yeah, are you going through, uh, actually, he's quoting here. He says, are you going through a dark, cold, lonely period in your life or business? Do you feel creative juices have dried up? Do you feel your labor doesn't bear fruit? This is a good time for this quote because it's the winter. Sounds like an right? infomercial, like the beginning of an well, infomercial. <laughs> it kind of does, yeah. But 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 he's asking all the right questions because some because we all feel like this, right? It's like what we you do, were talking we about do. these yeah. this this back and forth, and we all have these seasons, right? So so what you were talking about is more like perpetual irony of happiness and 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 unhappiness, and this is more the seasonal component of that. So do you, do you feel all this is dried up at the moment? It's not the bearing fruit of the moment. And and he's posting this in the winter. We're recording this in the winter. I've got a tree right outside my window with no leaves okay. on it. It, it. It's it's not an evergreen tree. And and um, it, it goes, the trees are now cold, dark, and lonely. That oh, was an interesting way to phrase that, right? They're cold, they're dark, mm -hmm. they're lonely. Um, all their le beautiful leaves are gone. All their juices have dried up. But today, not tomorrow, not the spring, Today, a new life is beginning in the trees. 
and it, and it will manifest. So it's there now mm-hmm. it's present. It just will manifest in the spring. Um, today, new creative juice is starting to flow again. So I, I love how these things pair together because what you're saying is, and, I, and there's the truth two two things can be true at the same time. Life is a constant irony of contentment and discontentment. And at the same time, it has oscillations of seasons where you spike discontentment or you spike into the scarcity. And there are other seasons where you spike into the plenty. And they don't necessarily flow like the seasons of nature do in set, you know, quarterly cycles throughout the calendar year. They're unpredictable. They uh, they elongate, they expand and contract. So we just have to understand they exist. And... Uh, if that's an encouragement to everybody listening, least listening in, um, I would say make m- the most of the seasons of plenty and store up and don't presume they're going to endure forever. Um, and then don't get discouraged in the seasons of scarcity because they don't endure forever either. That's beautiful. That was a beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. That was a beautiful. Yeah, well, it's all it's all prompted by Yaikel. Thanks, Yaikel, for sharing. Yaikel, thank you for Yeichel that. Yaikel Steinberg. No, yeah. I- I All right, let's that. wrap it up since this is the Water Report podcast with your favorite article, Miss Senior Editor of the Water Report from this past week in so the Water So my favorite Report. article, which goes right along with the topic of today's podcast, is from my good friend Linda Artisani uh, of the Proper Trust and Artisani Accounting. And she wrote an article called The Top Five Reasons to Specialize in Attorney Trust Accounting. And so she outlined she has niched in client trust accounting, and she has laid out why that's a great niche for uh, folks that are looking for really uh, interesting, impactful work. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Fantastic. Looking forward to reading it. Heather, it's been another great episode hanging out with you, and I'll look forward to the next time. Yep. See you, see you, see you, Joe, next time, and see everybody. Take care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.